Hey, welcome back. So before I get into the meat of today's podcast, I first of all want to talk about my podcast and the fact that, you know, over the, the course of, of June, uh, July, August, I think I put out a total of, you know, three, four, five episodes, not very many. Um, and, and to be honest, for a while there, I was considering just, you know, throwing in the towel on the whole uh, operation as a whole. However, that's not going to be happening, and in fact, I'll, I'll be returning, you know, starting this week, hopefully with, you know, three podcasts a week with a lot of variety, um, a lot of, of different projects that I have in the works that I, I would like to, to work on. And so you guys can look forward to that, those of you that enjoy my perspective, enjoy you know, my podcast, or I have in the past, and for those of you that are just stumbling upon it now because you're potentially new to precious metals or something along those lines, welcome to to my podcast. Welcome to the Silver Fortune uh, podcast. Welcome to the Silver and Gold community, the investing community, whatever it is that you'd call yourself a part of. Uh, now, today I want to to start off by talking about. Uh, well, we'll start off with talking about the silver and gold markets, namely the fundamentals. Now, obviously, the, the two big things that I have missed because I haven't been talking about them over the past few months have been the, the, the huge run up in silver and gold uh, over 2000 for gold, you know, over 27 plus dollars for silver, as well as more recently uh, in the last week or two, a pretty significant pullback. Currently, we're talking gold under $1,900 an ounce, silver in the $23 range, gold to silver ratio uh, somewhat above 80, 81, 82, somewhere in that range. Now, perspective, you know, 23 is is high for silver. 1800 is very high for gold. And, and you know, if you're going to take one thing away from today's podcast, it's, it's sort of in the title of this podcast, not to say you shouldn't listen to it, but the fundamentals are intact. That's an important thing to remember. And what do I mean by that? The fundamentals are intact. I mean that despite this huge run-up and the more recent sell-off, not a whole lot has changed in terms of fundamentals for silver and gold. And if I could sum that up in one sentence, fundamentals for silver and gold amount to how much of it's coming out of the ground and the reasons for why people are buying it. Those two things haven't really changed. I mean, if we can briefly talk about supply and demand, which which uh, on the supply side, I'm talking mining supply and to some extent, some extent scrap supply. They're a little bit more opaque, you know, throughout the year, a little harder to to um, track. Oftentimes, uh, uh, mining supply, the amount of metals that are coming out of the ground. This is something we have to update on a on a quarterly basis from a lot of these companies. Um, however, there's no reason to believe that you know some of the the effects of the COVID nineteen pandemic and, and recession um, continue to to affect the market even now. Uh, continue to affect some many of these mining companies, um, namely the fact that a lot of them were shut down for some period of time. A lot of their operations were, and maybe to some extent still are, are disrupted by supply chain problems, logistical problems, and of course you know in some cases just outright orders to to not do business to not you know, work for a while. And and that's going to, you know, when you look at the end of the year, that you look at the, you know, the amount of, of again, metals that were brought out of the ground, because that's really what, what I'm talking about here when we come to supply, you're going to see that it has dropped off more than expected for 2020. And that hasn't changed, even though those mines may be getting back, you know, to, to operating, you know, to, to full speed. 
we have to keep in mind that that the the, the supply, particularly for silver, was already set to decline in 2020 pre-COVID, anyways. Right, and that when it comes to scaling up production, whether it's at existing mines or new mines, mines that have been abandoned in the past, whatever, that is a capital-intensive project. Not something that many companies are necessarily under uh, willing to undertake in a, a recessionary environment, a volatile environment in terms of price. Capital-intensive, and it takes a lot of time. We're not talking weeks. Even, you know, a couple months, we're talking many, many months, a uh, year, year and a half or more, depending on what type of project we're talking about, a, a mine where, where ground hasn't even been broken yet. It's just a, a you know identified deposit or we talked about an existing mine scaling up. Either way, it takes a lot of time to scale up production. And, you know, if you're a mining company, a lot of these mining companies, yes, they may be a fan of silver and gold, but they're not permables. They have to be realistic. Are they going to scale up production? when you know silver has has only been at this level for for a few months now gold has only been moving up for a few months as well i'm not saying that that they're right in and maybe being a little bearish or at least you know questioning how long will this this move up continue but i mean that's their their focus is making money their focus isn't on you know how high silver and gold will go they can oftentimes make money either way but it doesn't make sense to scale up production and invest all this capital if if gold is going to be you know back at thirteen hundred a year from now or silver is going to be below twenty, right? They're probably going to lose money on a lot of that or not make it nearly as much as they could, right? So fundamentals are intact on the supply side and then the demand side. The reasons for why people are buying silver and gold again are pretty similar. Now, granted, there may not be as much panic in the marketplace or or um, urgency to to purchasing silver and gold right now compared to let's say march and april of this year you know when the market was just crazy busy um no i mean that's and certainly even when it was moving up above 20 21 you know 27 dollars an ounce for silver 2000 for gold yeah that type of urgency may not be there right now but if you look at the long-term factors why both stackers like like you and i as well as um, larger investors, whether it's a firm, um, hedge funds, uh, wealthy individuals, pension funds, etc., why they would buy silver and gold, uh, those fundamentals largely are intact. And that's what I want to really talk about in, in today's video is, is, well, what is it that's going to cause those individuals to, you know, continue to view silver and gold in a bullish light? Namely, what I'm talking about is things that somebody would buy silver and gold to hedge against. Inflation is, is maybe the top one that comes to mind. But also um, political problems, geopolitical problems, economic problems, fears about other assets uh, dropping in price, whether that's, you know, broadly speaking, equities, bonds, real estate. You know, those are some of the the major ones other than, um, you know, cash, which again is where we're talking about that inflation problem then as well. You know, those reasons for, for, for you know, hedging against those assets or hedging for those types of events or outcomes, those are still largely in play. I mean, I think so, so later on in this week, I'll be putting on another podcast, um, 
and I haven't settled on a title, but it'll be something along the lines of, uh, waiter, this isn't the, the collapse that I ordered, right? We're talking about this, this economic societal collapse that we're seeing right now. This isn't a massive, everything grinds to a halt in the span of two days type of collapse. This is a slow grind. 2020, I, you could argue it started long before 2020, but 2020 has been a long grind uh, from from the COVID to to um, you know race riots and protests and and now you know a major recession and and to top it all off an election that's it's looking ugly to say the least. I mean, all of those things are sort of grinding on people right now. I think grinding on the economy. And it hasn't been this massive collapse that I think a lot of people, you know, myself potentially included, envision. Now, I mean, I think that eventually that moment will happen where where it does just sort of all fall apart to some extent or another. But we're not there yet. We're still in the slow grind, right? But those things are still happening today. The the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government with their actions that they've taken thus far in 2020. I'm talking QE lower interest rates, and a whole bunch of money printing, which could be synonymous with, with QE, but money uh, printing with the intent to to basically give it to the public. I'm talking stimulus packages from, from the government, uh, whether that's bailouts, stimulus checks, etc. Those things haven't somehow averted disaster. And in fact, you know, as we head into the end of 2020, there there's many reasons for for one to believe that the actions they've taken thus far in 2020 have not been enough. Now, I'm not advocating that they do more at all. You guys know I'm, I'm much more principled than to say something like that. But um, it's, it's, you know, as we head closer to the election, it's clear that Congress is, is unlikely to act in terms of, of a stimulus package. You know, the, the, the Democrats wanted something like a $2.2 trillion package the, the conservatives in their their fiscal uh, conservatism wanted something closer to like 1.5 trillion, sort of an impasse, and it's unlikely to be resolved at, at least by the election, if not you know through the end of this um, this congressman and president's term. You know, depending on how the election goes, this might not get resolved until January, right? Um, the the Federal Reserve also hasn't been nearly as active as of late. And this is despite the fact that many businesses, many, I, I mean, thousands and thousands of businesses here in the United States and abroad have closed in the last six months. That unemployment is still relatively high. That any, you know, burst in, in economic activity that we saw there for a while was was likely largely due to two things. the The unemployment benefits that were expanded significantly and the stimulus checks. I mean, you could, you could say other things as well, you know, some of the bailout loans and programs that, that probably added to the stimulus as well. But the point is, is that, you know, many of those programs are, are no longer uh, happening at this point, right? This is likely to grind down. The economy is likely to grind to a halt once again, by the end of this year. And then you add on to that political and geopolitical problems as well. First of all, the election. 
what direction is this election going to go? It's hard to say, honestly. And and I'm not trying to be political at all in this in this podcast in, in the sense of partisanship. I'm not casting my vote for one or the other in today's podcast. And, you know, to be truthful, I don't plan to in the election either. I plan on voting. But the election is a huge question mark right now. And, and the question mark for me is not who wins. Yeah, there's huge impacts, whether it's Biden or Trump. Huge impacts for the markets, for society, etc. What I think is, is more important at this point in time is how does the election go and how do people respond to it? And I'm talking about the media, about politicians, and, and people. How do we respond to the election results? Because I, I will say right now that I have major concerns about how this election will go down. Right? It's going to look like it's going to make 2016 and any you know questions about the legitimacy of Trump's victory in 2016. I think it was largely legitimate. Right? And this is coming from a guy who didn't vote for Trump. I think it was largely legitimate. But it's going to make those you know 2016 Russian interference. Uh, um, accusations look like a, a small blip on the radar compared to what I think could be coming from either party, regardless of who wins. Right? If if Biden wins, yeah, there is going to be you know plenty of outcry from Trump himself. You know, I think that's what's going to really set this apart for maybe past ones. If Biden wins, it's not just going to be a couple people, you know, in the party or 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 you know individuals. It's going to be largely a, a large swath of politicians headed by Trump saying that this is in some way illegitimate. Whether it is, you know, some of the rules about mail-in voting, voting by mail, some manipulation of those results, or the fact that, that people can, can, you know, they're in some places still accepting ballots well after the election has taken place, you know, the actual election day, you know, on and on. You know, there's plenty of things to nitpick at and say this isn't legitimate. And I think some of those concerns are legitimate on the right and and on the left. I think, you know, I think the truth about this is that we shouldn't expect either party. I think, okay, we should reasonably expect both parties to to behave ethically. I think it's unreasonable to to actually expect that, though. Realistically, I think it's realistic that both parties will behave unethically in respect to, to this election. There's going to be plenty to point fingers at. If Trump wins, believe me, right? Democrats showed in 2016 they weren't afraid to say this was illegitimate because of, you know, Russian interference. There's something coming this time as well because it is an important election, or at least that is the perception by the left and the right. You know, I hear this from a lot of people on a daily basis that this is the most important election of our lives. I think most people are maybe falling to, to recency bias. I, I feel like I've heard that a couple times, even in my relatively short life. I'm not so convinced of that. But there's a lot of people in politics, in business, voters, that believe that that's the case. That this is a must-win situation. Whether it's because of the Supreme Court, whether it's because of... Of, of specific policies because they just really dislike one person or one party or the other. That this is really important to a lot of people. So important that I that I truthfully believe that our society 
could see some serious disruptions based on how this election goes. And I could be wrong, right? My concerns could be unfounded. I think they're certainly founded. This could go and come and go, this election, and it could be very similar to, to ones of the past where there's not a whole lot of controversy. But certainly today's you know, society here in the United States is ripe for, I, I don't know what the right word is, Unrest, I think, doesn't do it full justice. Insurrection, maybe. I don't know. From the right or the left, we've seen plenty of individuals, both in, in politics and, and just you know everyday individuals like you and I, that have shown that they're more than willing to, you know, burn down buildings, walk up and down the street, you know, armed with, with rifles. Or, and I'm not, you know, advocating against something like that in, in certain cases, um, I, I believe in, I'm a big believer in the Second Amendment. More so, what I'm looking at is just how impassioned people are based on their political views. Anyways, the point of what I'm saying here, there's a lot of concerns going into the end of this year. You know, another one that would come up would be geopolitical. You know, as we head into the end of, of Trump's first term towards election season, many people expect North Korea to, to start up their, um, their missile testing once again potentially as early as, you know, October. Some point in October. They have some big events coming up, some big anniversaries. I think the 75th anniversary of the, uh, of the, I don't know what it is, DPRK, or I don't know, it's the exact anniversary, maybe the Workers' Party or something like that. It's a big deal in the country. Yeah, I think we can expect um, potentially some, some ballistic missile launches. And how does Trump respond to that? Right. These geopolitical things, you know, the more you learn about history, I think these geopolitical events like that, they make me a little little more leery. I mean, on one hand, we've avoided nuclear war, you know, maybe the worst possible outcome in human history in terms of, of warfare. We've avoided that for the most part, with the exception of the two that we dropped on Japan for the for the, you know, the full time that we've had um, access to them. But, you know, whenever these geopolitical conflicts come up, they can seem small, you know, it's just North Korea, right? And yet you look at what type of events started World War II, started World War I, started major conflicts in the time between now and World War II. It's, it's oftentimes what seem like small events on the surface. Another great example would be the newly begun war between um, Azer, Azerbaijan and, and Armenia, right? I mean, who saw that coming? Not me, because I don't know a whole lot about the region and, and about their politics and, and their geopolitics and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, over the weekend, war erupted between these two countries. It's, you know, large scale, maybe not as large scale as, as one would think in like conventional senses, conventional warfare, but a pretty decent sized conflict going on. And hey, guess what? Guess who's helping one of the sides? Turkey, you know? And so you got to ask yourself, what? Well, how important is Armenia and Azerbaijan? Well, you got to think about who's supporting sides, who's supporting the Armenians, who's supporting the Azerbaijanis, whatever the correct term would be. Um, you know, you go back to World War One. that's a classic example. You know, the worst possible outcome in that time. Because um, obviously, you know, nuclear warfare is worse, but they didn't have them back then. You know, we're talking about an assassination of uh, Archduke Ferdinand, in Sarajevo in, in 1914. Uh, and yet, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't a, 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 um, 
a clash between German and Russian forces. This wasn't a clash. This wasn't that shells just started flying across, you know, um, some of these borders uh, in, in France and, and Germany. This wasn't that, that, that the Germans just outright started marching on Belgium. It wasn't, you know, those things came eventually, but that wasn't how it started. It started as an assassination in Sarajevo, of all places, right? These things oftentimes start small. And so that's, you know, more concerns that can come up here. I know I'm, I'm going on and on about, you know, very specific instances. But the reason I bring all these things up is because, you know, I want to make the point here that as we head into the end of 2020, on one hand, on the economic side, there are a lot of things that boosted the economy for much of the year that are no longer in play at this point. I'm talking stimulus packages and stimulus from the Fed. Now, the Fed has a little more flexibility because they're not, you know, beholden to Congress in the election, really. I mean, they are, but let's be honest, they aren't. But Congress is unlikely to do anything between now and the election, potentially between now and January, depending on how the election goes, right? They might have bigger concerns at that point, you know, come mid-November. And on top of that, you have a ton of things that could potentially lead to major political or geopolitical upheaval. Whether it's it's a new conflict, whether it's an expansion of existing conflicts, whether it's it's um, a disputed election, a heavily disputed election that makes you know even two, even two thousand look like again a blip on the radar. Any of those things could be coming down the pipe in the coming months. Plenty of reason to believe in the fundamentals between silver and gold. And, and, and I've barely even touched base on some of the longer-term fundamentals. The fact that, that we've now digging ourselves in, a, in an economic hole, a, a debt hole that we are unable to get out of and, and seemingly only able to dig deeper into, you know, here in the United States and really around the world. You know, I can go on and on about some of these additional fundamentals. I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this as a precursor for another podcast later this week. The Federal Reserve and, and governments and central banks, Bank of International Settlements, they've done a remarkable job in financially engineering today's marketplace, today's economy, seemingly to make it crash-proof. My view is that this is going to continue to grind down across the board. However, the collapse that many of us envisioned, whether it's a massive drop in the stock market or banks just shuddering over the weekend, whatever it is. I do believe that that type of a collapse is going to happen eventually. However, more and more, I believe that something like that is going to happen because of an exogenous event. Meaning, outside of the financial system, the economic system. I've gone over some of the potential examples today. But I think that exogenous event is going to happen. And, and I will remind you that the slow grind down in the economy makes the environment all the more ripe for an exogenous event to, to occur. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast and God bless.